this morning ends up being quite different, as I mentioned. You know, a, a struggle to carry out these themes and want to do it in a way that doesn't merely become a lecture. Also with the clear recognition in my mind that you could, you could mercifully allot to me four hours this morning to cover this material. And it still would not be, uh, allow me sufficient time to be comprehensive. Because God's word is that powerful and that deep. And I do know this, in a short period of time, such as an hour, those who might be holding differing views, it may be impossible for me to convince you. Ultimately, I can tell you this, much of what I may even present today, it took a lot of my own personal wrestling with the word of God before finally I recognize this. I've got to either keep clinging to the things that I grew up believing and choose to ignore some of the things in scripture or I say God is true even if every man's a liar. I've got to take God at his word. Now, that was hard when I was younger because I didn't realize that the journey I was making in, in this understanding of certain truths of Scripture was not unique to me. And this is one of the struggles that we have sometimes when the teaching like I'm going to present today that was, was among the key issues why there was a Protestant Reformation. Why there were men such as Martin Luther, who as they're studying the scripture and as they're looking at what the church at that time is teaching and practicing, seeing the word of God says differently than we practice. The word of God says differently than we believe. And he was forced to make that decision by the grace of God. Do I follow God and take him at his word or do I continue to follow the ways of man. But what happened in the days of the Protestant Reformation were not when it, was be when it began. If you go all the way back to the days of even the apostles in the scripture, there were some who would come and present a gospel that was not the gospel. They would present a Christ that was not the Christ. We have these warnings in the early part of Galatians. They would present grace that is not truly grace. And here's the sad thing, uh, what, what can happen as we let our own thoughts and reasoning overcome the clear testimony of scriptures, we're in danger of that indictment of you know neither the power of God nor the scriptures. And that's a big concern. And so I want us to, to understand this. And so there's going to be at the beginning, bear with me a little bit of historical lesson okay and I know these initially won't mean anything to you but there was a man named Pelagius who was born in 380 AD so this is long back and during the time that Pelagius was studying the scripture and a teacher there was also another man who was a student of a studier of the scripture and a teacher and preacher his name was Augustine, some prefer the pronunciation of Augustine, it matters not to me. But you had these two different men. And this was one of the earliest times that we have this swelling of issues coming up as to how is it that we are saved. 
And there are these two indelibly intertwined issues of the grace of God and the will of man and how that works. And Pelagius came into these things and his argument was, you know what? The sin of Adam has not so affected mankind as to render us helpless. We can do what is necessary in and of ourselves unto salvation. And Augustine is like, that's not what the scriptures teaches. In Adam, we're told in Romans, condemnation came upon all men. In Adam, sin passed upon all men. And the scriptures go on to state that men in that condition are under corruption, imprisoned by their sin nature. And if it is not from, for the grace of God, none will be saved. That was the beginning. Now, shortly after that, a group of men began to try to present, and this is what happens... A moderating view. And this is a danger. The goal. Now sometimes the view that the scriptures teach. Ends up being between two extremes that are taught in the world. That does happen. But our goal is never a pursuit of the happy middle. Of the comfortable medium. The goal is always. As, as in the opening passage I read. Paul was saying stewards of the mysteries of God. And there's a simple thing, and it's important that a steward be found faithful. That's still the responsibility of the church today, to be stewards of the mysteries of God. Part of what's bound up in that term, mysteries of God, and this is, this is humbling for us as men, as humans. It means this, if God does not say it, if God does not make it known, you're never going to know it. You're never going to figure it out. It is a mystery that you can't discern, you can't discover, but it is that which God himself has made known. He made the apostles stewards of the mysteries of God, and the scriptures continue to be that which reveals to us what we must believe, even though we would never know it or figure it out on our own. So men came up with a middling view that historically was called semi-Pelagianism. Not all the way to saying that uh, we can do it ourselves, but somewhere in between that says, oh, we, we need God's help. I mean, it's not that God saves us, but it's kind of a cooperative effort. Synergistic. A little him, a little me. That we do it together. And, and the idea that they began to present that became popular when the teachings of men like uh, uh, John West presented a notion that the scriptures doesn't teach. A notion called prevenient grace. We'll soon be done with the lecture and into the text. So be patient with me. Prevenient text. The preven uh, prevenient grace. The theory behind that is man is fallen in sin. But what God has done so that man can now save himself is he's generally universally given grace. Not a grace that saves, but grace that's enough to help you save yourself. Which allows them to say, nobody's saved without grace. We're saved by grace. 
But it, they're saying that of one side of their mouth, but they're saying, ultimately, we're not saved by grace. Grace enabled us to save ourselves. And, there, and there's a percentage, and the percentage has always been a, a confusion. At times, people have said, it's 50-50. And then it became more popular, God has done 99%. You just need to do one. God has come all the way down to you, and he's put out his hand. All you need to do is lift your hand and take it. And it's moving, and it's emotional, but we must ask ourselves, is that what the Scripture teaches? And I want us to see that it ultimately is not. The semi-Pelagian view is also today presented under what is called the Arminian view. And I just want us to begin to, um, to see a, cert, a, a, a few thoughts. When we're, when we're dealing with the nature of the will of man, you know, it's interesting. I, what often happens, if any of you have ever taken any Bible classes or theology classes, what often happens is this, men present these ideas. And, and, part, and the best way to confuse people or, or mislead us is if there's truth mixed into it. Okay? And so, for example, they will say this. Men and women were created in the image of God. And then they'll go to Genesis and they'll show that's exactly what the scripture says. Men, man and woman, God created he them in his own image and likeness. It says that very clearly. But then the next statement that we've not thought about, the Bible doesn't actually say. But since the first part was true, we just assume the rest of the sentence is true. They say this, God created man in his own image. And man has, God has free will. And so since men are created in the image of God, men have free will. And you know what most people's response to that is? Yeah, that makes sense. But just because something makes sense does not mean it is so. It's amazing that there are some today that the most offensive thing that you can do is deny man's free will. And I just want to make this very clear, and I say this not in a negative or disparaging way, but in the wisdom of God, in the word of God, God himself has revealed that he does not have free will. What are you saying? And how dare you say that? No, God's will is bound up in his nature. And God in his holiness, God in his perfection, God in his truthfulness, God cannot, will not violate things. few verses of scripture. It tells us this in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17 and 18. Now, again, this is also presenting something that comes to us out of the book of Numbers. God is not a man that he should lie. But it says this in Hebrews 6, 17. God's word, not mine, and not even specific theologians from crucial points in history. God's word, which is why the principal thrust of the Reformation was sola scriptura, the scriptures alone. And everything else flows out of that. Hebrews 6, 17. So when God desired, 
to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath, verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Is that not true? God cannot. Well, what if he wanted to, is the horribly humanistic response. Uh, he is holy, righteous, pure. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. The desire for him to lie will never come from his nature. The scripture says, not me. Which, when I say the scripture says, I can also say, God says, it is impossible for him to lie. So is he free? He is gloriously bound by his nature. That lack of free, it's not a limitation. It's not a weakening. It's a further exalting, a further glorifying. Job chapter 34 Verse 12 says this, as moved by the Spirit of God, Elihu speaks on God's behalf to Job and says this, Of a truth, God will not do wickedly. The Almighty will not pervert justice. So can God do wrong? This is Job 34, 12. Can God do wrong? Can he pervert justice? No, he cannot. Why not? These things are against his holy nature. Don't want to belabor it too much, but more quickly. James 1, 13 says, Let no one when he is tempted say, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. So God cannot be tempted. And he himself tempts no one. One more, and this is the last one, showing you the glorious nature of God's perfection. That his will is beautifully bound to his holy being. 2 Timothy 2.13 If we are faithless... He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Are you saying that there's something that God cannot do? Well, please note this. I was reading. God is saying that there are some things he cannot do. And these cannots do not make him weaker. They do not make him less. They, 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 they just make him more perfect. But see, if we are created in the image of God, we should understand this. Our wills are bound to our nature. As his will is, was, is bound to his nature, that he could not sin, he could not lie, he cannot deny himself. Our wills are bound to our nature and what does the scripture say is our nature? 
it tells us this very clearly. Condemnation has come upon all men so that all have sinned. The scriptures repeatedly state because of Adam, the condition of mankind is fallen, corrupted, sinful. That is the way that we are. Again, we, we note this, that we have wicked people in this world who do horrible things. Are there classes on serial murders? Does someone instruct someone else how to do those things? Other, other forms of, of perversion and abuse. Does someone instruct on those things? Where do they come? Jesus reminds us of this. When someone sinned, it comes from within him out of his own heart. The condition is such that God's word says this to help us understand the limitations of man's will with regard to spiritual things and moral things in Jeremiah 13. In Jeremiah 13, 23, it's a very familiar section of scripture for many. It simply says this. Can an Ethiopian change his skin color? I mean, you could go further. Can anyone? No. The, the simple idea is, what it, ultimately, what, what color a person is, that's determined when they're born. That is inherent to them. It is genetically designed. It's who they are by birth. And that stays with a person. All the way until they're passing. That's not something that can change. But it, by giving an example of something that's unchangeable. Uh, the, someone changing their skin color. Or a leopard his spots. Can a leopard remove the spots? Move them around, shuffle them for style day by day, cannot be done. Can an Ethiopian change his skin? Can a leopard change its spots? Then you also who are can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Can people truly, truly change themselves? We'll see what the scripture says. It says that they cannot. Now, they may strive for whatever social reasons. They may strive because of the practical consequences they, they face. And there is, by the grace of God, a degree of restraint that prevails among society. There is a knowledge of good and evil. And we have some sense of conscience. But the practice of sin, by those of us who are sinners, the constant practice of sin can sear those consciences so that some become practicers of evil to degrees that we can't we sometimes can't even figure out how could someone do that well I want us to look a little bit further Jeremiah 17 9 tells us this the heart is deceitful above all things and as it says in the King James and desperately wicked who can know it. The whole point is this. We tend to think. Well I know my heart. I know my heart. I'm in control of things. No you don't. 
It's desperately wicked. The condition that we're in is helpless. I would, like I was uh, I've told some, I was speaking to a man uh, uh, recently, a friend um, that, that I met when I was uh, actually with Justin in Shreveport. And he was saying, you know what? I grew up my whole life thinking I was a Christian, thinking I was saved until God saved me. And then I realized, oh my, <laughs> I wasn't. Grew up, you know, in, in, in a approximate Christian Bible Belt culture, go into church, but did not love the Lord God with all his heart, soul, and strength. Did not seek God, did not really live every day for the pleasure and glory and honor of God. You know, he gave general agreement to the things that the scripture teaches, but not. He wasn't owned by it. I want us to see this. Jesus says this to, to some of those who were challenging him in John 5, 39. He says these words. You search the scriptures. Because you think. That in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse. Come to me and have life. That's the natural condition of man. The scriptures bear witness about him. The testimony is there. But man in his sin refuses to come to him and have life. Why does a man refuse to come to him and have life? I don't understand. Why would someone refuse? He, life is in him. There's no life in any other way but through him. Why would someone not go to him? And you know what the scriptures tell us? It reminds us later in John chapter 6 verse 44. No one can come unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on that last day. It is written in the prophets. And they will all be taught by God. Listen. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father. Comes to me. There is something that has to happen. Men will hear. But they will not come. But when the grace of God. Operates. In that God himself. Enables us to hear. And indeed teaches us. Gives us understanding. You know what we do? We come. So God is. God overcomes our nature. And all of that struggle. Again Jesus is dealing with some of them. Later in John 6. Verse 63. He says look the spirit. It is the spirit that gives life. The flesh is no help at all. You, you got no participation. You got no help. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. It's through the gospel that God is pleased to bring the, car, the power of God to salvation. He goes on to say this. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who, were not, uh, who did not believe. And who it was who would betray him. And then Jesus says this. This is why I told you that no one can come to me. Unless it is granted by the Father. And you know what the scripture says at this point? And many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Yeah. I don't like Jesus' doctrine. Yeah. I want to be a Christian, but I don't want to listen to what Christ has to say. Does that make sense? Not at all. Well, well this sounds a little bit mysterious. Uh, yeah. 
It's interesting because now the the scriptures, and I want to be very clear, I can't unfold all of this love to meet and discuss with you if you have more questions concerning some of these things. The scripture teaches about man and his sin, his inability and lack of desire to truly seek and follow after God. His inability to understand spiritual things. And God has to, by his spirit, do a special work. And if he does not do that, it's not going to happen. But the world tends to say this. No, no, no. Men have free will. And they'll go to a few verses in scripture that speak of men making choices. Or men being instructed to make choices. Yes, Men make choices. We are responsible for the choices we make. The scriptures make that very clear. Now, now the confusion is the, the Christian philosopher who's trying to mix his thoughts with the scriptures is it wouldn't be fair for God to command something of us if we can't do it. We can't be held responsible if we're not able. We can't be accountable if we're not able, really, God says, be holy as I am holy. Who can do that? Who's ever done that? It is not in a man to be holy. If God were to mark sin, no man could stand before him. There is none who is righteous. No, not one. Well, uh, then, then how do we get from because of our sinful nature, we don't desire God, we don't really want Him because men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. That's our bent. That's our propensity. How's, how is that? Well, God has to change our hearts. Give us a new heart. Give us a new desire. Oh, that would not be right for God to change our hearts and desires. God would never do that. Oh, that's why I say we live in such a sad age where so many are woefully, historically ignorant and biblically ignorant. Just want to present for you a few thoughts from the scriptures. And if you have your Bible, look. If not, you can certainly note them down and look later. Or if you want, I can give you the verses later because we're going to cover a lot and very fast. Second Chronicles 10 verse 15. Here you have a man, King Jeroboam. He is the son of Solomon. He is becoming a king. The people have asked him to lighten the load a bit from what was going on from his father. And this is what the scriptures say. So the king, this is 2 Chronicles 10, 15, did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by God, that the Lord might fulfill his word which he spoke through Ahijah, the Shilohim, to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Now, the way that it's stated in the King James translation is simply this. The king hearkened not to the people, for the cause was of God. Hmm. That's interesting. Now, now the idea of a turn of affairs by God. The, here, again, it's challenging because this is a Hebrew word, 
None of us here necessarily speak Hebrew, but the Hebrew word here for turn of affairs or a cause, a change brought about by God is the Hebrew word siba. And siba simply means this, if you were to look it up in a lexicon, it, it, it says this, it is designated when God has turned the affairs of men arranged by his sovereign disposition. Men are wavering on what decision that they should make and God is able to superintend, even alter their decision. Let's go more directly if you're uh, uncertain. In Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 30, it tells us this. As the children of Israel are traveling out of Egypt, they come into the, the region where Sihon, Sihon, the king of Heshbon, would not let them pass. And we might ask ourselves, well, why would he not let them pass? And we can in and ourselves come up with a multitude of practical reasons why he would not let them pass. But the scriptures say this is the reason he would not let them pass. This is why he decided as he did. For the Lord, he would not let us pass. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made him obstinate that he might give him hand as he did this day is able to take the, the uh, selfish, sinful desires of men and direct those wherever he will. God is able to take the sinful desires of men and stop that. God is able to take a man bent on sinful direction and change his heart to go another direction. One of the amazing things in the days uh, that would follow this, the children of Israel would end up going into a time of exile, extended exile of 70 years. In that 70 years, there would be a slew of different men who would be rulers, beginning with Nebuchadnezzar on through. And in that time, God so works that he's going to, at 70 years, send the children of Israel back they are going to rebuild Jerusalem and they are going to rebuild the temple. Now, this is an amazing thing because God is going to cause pagan kings who worship false gods to suddenly and completely commit themselves to allowing the children of Israel, their slaves and enemies, to go back and rebuild and reestablish their worship, their religion, their faith. It says this in Ezra chapter 6, verse 22. It says, they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful and had, listen, turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them. So, where was his heart initially? Against them. To subjugate them, to mistreat them, to oppress them, to subdue them. And what did God do? Now to protect them and provide for them. And to encourage them to go back. So that he aided them in the work of the house of the God of Israel. Even further, it says this in Ezra 6. 
14. The elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. Listen, they finished building by the decree of God. So who is the ultimate authority? Who decided this is being rebuilt? God. But God's decree not merely overrode, but controlled the decrees of men. Turned king after king after king. Because look at the rest of this verse. They finished the building by the decree of the God of Israel. And by the decree of Cyrus. And Darius. And Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. God's just turning hearts all along. Ezra 7, 7 says, Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers who put such a thing into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord. And again, if you were to read through there, not only did he allow them to go back and build, but he gave them letters that all of the materials that they needed to build would be provided by their enemies. That's amazing. Of the scripture, which is why it tells us this in Proverbs 21.1, that the, um, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. God, God turns hearts. That's what he does. Jeremiah goes so far as to say this. Jeremiah 10. And sometimes we just don't listen to the, the clear verses because we got our own feelings mixed in there. Jeremiah 10, 23 says this. I know, O Lord... That the way of a man is not in himself. That it is not in a man who walks to direct his steps. I mean, how more clearly can it be said? Uh, it's not in a man to do it. Then how, how does it happen? Well, Proverbs 16.9 tells us. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. God is absolutely able to and does. The plans of the heart, Proverbs 16, 1, belong to man. But the answer is from the tongue of the Lord. You know, what's, why should we be astounded? And, and it's somewhat embarrassing if, if, if men would just study the scripture and think about what it says. Because if men can do something, if women can do something, then why would we say that God can't? Do it. Look what it says in 1 Kings 11.3. This is always a heartbreaking section of scripture for me. 1 Kings 11.3. Because you have Solomon the son of David. Whom God had gifted with such a degree of privilege. And wisdom in so many ways. But God's word tells us as he became older. Later in life. It says this. He had 700 wives. And we won't go into the morality of that at this time. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. Listen. And his wives turned his heart away. His love for them, it tells us as he was old, not to be wholly true to his God. And he built shrines to false gods. So Listen. If the wives can turn a man's heart, 
the wrong direction. How dare we say that the Almighty God can't do what even these wives did? But we in our own pride like to think, no, I am master of my own heart. No one tells me what to do. No one controls me. No, you know, it's not true. That itself is deception. I know it's true. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Listen, God gloriously turns hearts. Um, one, of the, one of the things, again, it, if you were to go to Psalm 105, In that passage of scripture, it says this, when the children of, is of the children of Israel, when they were prospering prior to oppression in the, in, the, in the land that God had brought them in Egypt. In Psalm 105, verse 25, God's word says this, he turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servant. No, God's not going to, God's not going to control what people think and do and love. What? Yes, he is. And more than that, if you were to go over to the very next psalm, Psalm 106, it says this in verse 46. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them, held them captive. So God can take those who are neutral and cause them to hate his people. God can take those who are and cause them to pity them. Because the reality, reality is this. God is the potter. We are the clay. He shapes us how he move, wills. He moves us how we will. And the scripture reminds us that apart from the grace of God, we would not turn to him. Again, uh, that simple passage that it, in Romans tells us this in Romans chapter 3. If, if you go look there with me. In Romans chapter 3 verse 9 and following. It says what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. Romans 3 9. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. That's the condition of all men since Adam. All are under sin. What does that look like? According to the testimony of God, what is the response, uh, 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 the behavior of those who are under sin? Look what it says with me, if you would. In verse 10, it says, as it is written, and this is quoting from both Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, none is righteous, no, not one. And I'm always thankful for God's word on that because it helps us to understand that the all being referred to here is an absolute totality. The word all is used many different ways in scripture. But with regard to condemnation and the sinful condition, it is absolute totality. All of mankind, every man, woman, and child ever in this world, ever conceived. In sin did my mother conceive me. That's the, that's the natural condition. None is righteous, no, not one. Well, without righteousness, 
we cannot see God. So how are any of us ever going to stand before God? No one ever in themselves is worthy. None is righteous. No, not one. Now, I'm thankful for the grace of God that in the historic purposes of God, there was one that was uniquely different. Jesus Christ. He was born of a woman, born under the law, yet without sin. He was born not like any other descendant of Adam, for he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit. He was fully God and fully man, a mystery that just beyond our comprehension. But outside of Christ, remember, the first Adam did not have sin until he sinned and sin passed on all men. Jesus, the scriptures refer to as the second or last Adam. Like the first Adam, he was without sin. Unlike the first Adam, he was perfect in holiness. He became the perfect sacrifice, the sacrifice on the cross without blemish and without spot that brought us the forgiveness of our sins. And so, again... None is righteous, no, not one. It goes on to say this also. No one understands. So how many understand? You tell them the gospel, you tell them about salvation, you tell them about God's mercy and grace and love and hope, and you tell them all of these things. And the scripture says, no one understands. Uh, I disagree because I understand. Well, the, the, no one by their nature understands. As it tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, 14, the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. They are spiritually discerned. 1 John chapter 5 tells us that the Son has come and given us understanding. So by nature, no one has understanding. When the Spirit unites us to the Son by grace, we are granted understanding oh but so the natural condition of man no one is righteous no one seeks god or no one understands no one seeks for god all have turned aside they have all together become worthless no one does good not even one it's like wow it could not be more clear. God saved me not because of my inestimable worth. Because I was altogether worthless. Not because of my goodness or my effort. Because none is righteous. Not because I was seeking him. Because none seek him. Not because I understood and accepted the gospel. Because none understands. Unless he, by his grace, opens our hearts and minds that we understand. That transforming, saving grace of God that makes all the difference. But, but here's, here's the sad thing, and I grew up being taught this. You know what God did? You know all those confusing things in the scripture, how it oft speaks of terms like elect, predestination, that a lot of people run away from. They say, well, not a problem. What happened is God just stood there 
And he looked from eternity past. He looked down through the future. And everyone who was going to seek him, everyone who was going to choose him, everyone who was going to believe, he elected them. That's a great story. Such a great story. I bought it for a season. But what, is the, what does Romans chapter 3 say? If God was to look down the future of time, men in left to themselves, how many are righteous? How long is that list? None. All right. How many understand and thus believe the gospel? None. How many seek after God? None. How many do good? None. The list of people saved would be how long? None. But God who's rich in mercy because of the love that he has for us chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So he purposed, though there's none, I will make sure that there is one. And in that one Christ, there will be salvation for a multitude. Who will find me not by their seeking. But I will send Jesus. And as the scripture says. He will seek and save the lost. So who's, who is righteous? You know. Coming out of that and looking at the totality of scripture. Who is righteous? Only one. Who seeks God. And seeks on behalf of God. Only one. And brings understanding. Only the. And descended. Taking on himself the form of sinful man. Oh the grace of God. Um, gonna, so ultimately. It's interesting because if, you, if, you, if we had time to go through. And I'm just going to say these things really quickly. These matter less to you. But these are not new ideas. Many of us know that men called the prince of preachers. Charles Spurgeon. Used so mightily in, in London in, the, in those days of his life. So powerful in evangelism and the gospel. And he preached and continues to be quoted by churches all around. Who don't recognize he, he wonderfully preached these words in a sermon. And listen as I say what he preached through his study of God's word. It has already been proved beyond all controversy. That free will is nonsense. Freedom cannot belong to the will. Any more than ponderability can belong to electricity. They are altogether different things. Free will is simply ridiculous. The will is well known to be directed by the understanding. Moved by motives. Guided by other parts of the soul. The will is a secondary thing. I will go so far as Martin Luther. Back to the Reformation. Against the Roman Catholic teaching of free will. Martin Luther said this. If any man doth ascribe to salvation. Even the very least to the free will of man. He knoweth nothing of grace. And has not learned Jesus Christ aright. Because ultimately. What do you have. That you have not received. And if you've received it, then why would you boast? As if you, he is the one who has done it. And, and I could go on.
this to a much more quick summary because the grace is connected with free will in certain ways. When the scripture talks about the condition that man is in, as we said, God's will is bound to his nature, which is perfection, justice, holiness. Man's will is bound to his nature, which is corrupted, sinful, bent on self and the flesh. The scripture gives these these in uh, these instructions and explanations to us saying things like this it tells us in Ephesians 2 and Colossians that we are spiritually dead tells us in Ephesians 4 that we are spiritually blind tells us in Psalm 58 that we are spiritually deaf that we're we're rebels we're polluted we're unable to change we're unable to do these things the sinner's intellect is controlled by a sinful nature the sinner's emotions are controlled by a sinful nature the sinner's will is controlled by a sinful nature. The sinner's conscience is defiled by sin, which would sound hopeless. But where there is no hope in man, there is hope in God. And God's word tells us this in Ephesians chapter 2. And, and this is going to be the last section so that we understand the nature of grace. That grace isn't something that God pours out that enables man to save himself. When God pours his grace on someone. That person is transformed. That's saved. When God. Again part of those ideas is, is we're confused. He gives us the gift of eternal life. And someone has in history decided to turn the gift of eternal life. Into a birthday gift or a Christmas present. They gave it to you. Now you open it or don't open if you want. That's not what it is. It's more like this. When God gave Adam the gift of life by breathing him to life, what now happened? Adam, it wasn't, it wasn't our, well, Adam, you're going to open this or not? You know, breath is right there. You're going you're gonna to take it in or, no, God gifted him life and he had life. When Jesus healed the blind man, gave them the gift of sight, what did they do? See, did he tell any of them, look, if you try harder to see, then I'll heal you. Is that how it works? That's nonsense. Ephesians 2 says it this way, and it's the most extreme one because it gives the example of how we're dead in our trespasses and sin. It says it in verse 1, it says it again in verse 5, because ultimately a dead person is deaf and blind. And not doing anything. And if someone is dead. Generally speaking. If someone is dead. What do they do? What do they respond to? Nothing. I mean if someone said. Look you just. You're no longer breathing. I'm willing to do CPR. But what I need you to do is. Uh, uh, lay your head back. Open your mouth. Is it going to happen? I'm willing to do it. I'm right here. Ready to. Ready to. Do the whole thing. But what I need you to do first. Is lean your head back. Is there going to be any response from that fellow? It's not. A, no there won't be. Unless he is alive. Now the scripture says in Ephesians 2. 5, and again I've often said this. You can threaten him with anything. You know. I want you to live. Get up now or I'll kick you. You get up now or I'll shoot you. Is he going to get up? Get up now, I'll give you a billion dollars. You can threaten him with agony and pain. You can pro 
all of his dreams. He's not. You know why? He'd be dead. Ephesians tells us that is the condition of natural man. What was our condition till God saved us? And how does he do it? Again, Ephesians 2, 5. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ Jesus. I always want us to remember that. In the end, made us alive together with Christ Jesus. I mean, the glory is to Christ. Salvation is by faith in Christ. He's the one who achieved our righteousness. He's the one who bore our sin. Ultimately, we've got to make sure as, as important as doctrine and truth is, our biggest declarations are not Bible doesn't teach free will. Free will is a myth. Our ultimate declarations are not also that um, they teach provenient grace, but God's word teaches a grace that actually saves. No. Our ultimate proclamation is Christ. The grace of God is given us in Christ Jesus. Our wills are turned because the understanding and the drawing and the working of God is given us in Christ Jesus before ages began. And I'll just still in this passage, Ephesians 2. We were dead in our trespasses. He made us alive. We didn't do anything. If you will just first know. He did not wait for us to initiate. What we did is continue be dead. And he made us alive. And to explain what that means is. By grace you have been saved. You know what the grace of God does? It takes it one spirit dead and it makes them alive kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light of his beloved son it takes him from being a servant of self and sin to now being a willing loving servant of the most high god i also want us to know this by grace you have been saved that phrase been saved is passive you contributed zip not, nothing, nada, any, you know, if there's a way to keep going to express nothing, that's what we did. He's not done. Raise us up and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. His grace, it's immeasurable because it took those who were unworthy, unrighteous, ununderstanding, not seeking, bound by our sinful natures, and set us free. The immeasurable riches, and don't miss this, of his grace in Christ Jesus. For by grace, once again, passive, you have been saved it's not that grace and me it's not even 99% grace and 1% me it is by the grace of God I have been saved people say but no I've been saved because I believed I have faith in Jesus yes you do how did you get faith verse 8 Ephesians 2 8 for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not 
your own doing. What? That's not my own doing? It gift of God. It's not my own doing. It's the gift of God. So why do I believe? Why do I see? Why do I breathe? Because God gave that gift to me. It's one of the things that, it's, that I wish that we could help. What Christian language has gotten so messed up that people are often using this phrase. Put your faith in God. You need to place your faith in Jesus. Well, that's as if we've got faith and we get to put it wherever we will. The scripture actually says, uh, no, faith in Christ is not of yourselves. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. So it's where the sinner is brought by the, by the overwhelming conviction of the Holy Spirit. Where it says, God help my unbelief. God save me. God have mercy on me. And so when I believe, you know what I don't say? I'm better than that fellow. Because you know what? He heard the same message I heard. But you know what I did? I received it. I believe. He didn't. Loser, winner, finished. Is that how it works? That's how some people tend to think of it. The scriptures don't allow that. Who sees anything different in you? Here's, here's the difference. We both heard the gospel, but in the mercies of God, though undeserving, I received grace. I received mercy. And so I'll fall on my knees and I say, God, I have no idea you, why you would save a sinner like me. But I know that I am saved because you turned my heart. You took me from death to life. You made me willing in the day. You made me alive. So the simple thing is this. The world teaches and so often churches teach us free will. Does the Bible teach free will? No. God doesn't have free will. His will is gloriously bound to his perfect nature. Fallen men don't have free will. It's horribly bound to their sinful condition. Unbreakably bound. At least unbreakably with regard to men's power. But as Jesus says, when the sun sets you free, you shall be free indeed. And when God in his grace, by the power of his son in the gospel, through the working of his spirit, makes one alive, sets them free. You know what we do? When he calls us to himself, we call upon the name of the Lord, confessing our sin, believing in our hearts because he saves us. So the scripture teaches, look, the will is bound to the nature. And the nature is bound to the world and to wickedness. But God in his mercy turns our wills. Makes us a new creation in Christ. Gives us a new nature. And further, grace doesn't just open a door. Grace brings us to life and brings us through that door to himself. Oh, the grace and mercy of God that is ours in Christ. Let's pray.